On May 25th, 2006, there was a climber named Lincoln Hall. And Lincoln Hall was on his way up to summit Mount Everest and was left for dead by his guides on the side of Mount Everest. The next day, his crew even released a, a statement, an announcement, announcing his death. And little did they know that Hall was very much alive. But he was in dire circumstances. He was suffering from altitude sickness and was disoriented as a result of that. Um, he was left alone on the mountain. He had no hat. He had no gloves. And he had no oxygen bottle, which are all essential gear for climbing on Mount Everest. One day later, a guy named Daniel Mazur and his climbing group came across Hall. Uh, he was just two hours from the peak, but having been abandoned uh, by his friends, he was sitting in the cold suffering. And Daniel Mazur could not bear the thought of getting to the top of Mount Everest, passing by this guy who was dying on the side of the trail. And so he abandoned his Everest quest, left his party to carry Hall down to the camp, down to the camp at the base of the mountain, which was about a four-hour trek that he carried this guy down the mountain. You know, just days before, there was another climber named David Sharp, and he was just 1,000 meters, or excuse me, 1,000 feet, 304 meters from the summit when dozens of people passed by. And because they didn't want to risk their own summiting of Mount Everest, they just walked by this guy and left him there to die, and he, he died there on the side of the mountain. But Daniel Mazur could not bear the thought of that. How, how can I get to the top having watched somebody that needs my help? How can I do that? You know, like Daniel Mazur, God loves us. He pursues us. He rescues the fallen those who cannot rescue themselves. Today in our passage, we are going to see God act in the midst of sin. And I know that this is something you guys rehearse here regularly, but the hero of our story is God. He's always the hero of the story. It's not, not the humans, it's not anybody else, it's, it's God himself. And this book here is the, is the container, if you will, of the historical testimony of a faithful God. And we're going to see him respond to dire circumstances. We're going to see him respond to sin. We're going to see him respond to an enemy that he has. And we're going to learn about the glory of who he is in the face of those things. Now, our passage today comes to us really from two historical, con or two contexts that are helpful in our lenses to looking at it. The first one is the historical context, and then the second one is the exegetical context. So for the historical context, Moses has been leading the people of Israel in their journey from slavery in Egypt, and they're on their way to the promised land. He's done this as a representative of Yahweh. Remember, Yahweh is the, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the same Yahweh that promised to make Israel a great nation, that they would be a light unto the nations around them, and the, the same Yahweh that promised to give Abraham and his descendants a land of their own. And staying true to his promises, God has miraculously delivered the Israelites from slavery. And he's now leading them through the desert to the land that he's promised, and as they're making their way through there, they keep encountering trials and troubles. And, and, and the thing that is amazing, though God led them out of Egypt with a high hand, the Bible tells us, I mean, they were just like, whoa, 
this is so awesome. It's like they made their way out of slavery and crossed over on dry land through the Red Sea and get to the other side. They're, they're just thrilled and excited. A little bit of grumbling when the sea was there before the sea parted. But they get to the other side and they say, break out in a national song, right? On the other side of the sea. They are thrilled to no longer be slaves. But then within just a matter of hours, a new trial brings a new test and they realize that Egypt still has so much of their hearts. Every new trial that they encounter brings up from their hearts this question being asked in a new and fresh way. Would we have been better off slaves? Would it have been better for us to just be in Egypt? And you remember throughout their journey, they're constantly sort of referring back to the glory days of how awesome it was in Egypt. Remember when we ate garlic? And onions. Wasn't that awesome? Not this manna. You remember? The, like they, they just thought back to the glory days of being slaves. <laughs> so Moses is journeying with them. And this question is at the back of the hearts. And, and it's during this time in the wilderness that Moses pens the book of Genesis for us. Moses is then given the law at Mount Sinai and the book of Genesis is written during these wilderness wanderings and through his recounting of the history of God, the people of Israel are, are going to grow into knowing their origin, uh, becoming familiar with the God who called them out of Egypt and what his plans are. And it's the background of this historical narrative that will orient the Israelites in understanding who God is and why it is that they should trust him and why it is that they should worship him. Matter of fact, our passage today is going to be the passage that defines the whole sacrificial system and explains the need for why there, there are, is a need for animal sacrifices in the first place. What is the offense? What, is gone, what has gone on? And how did the world get so broken? And what is so messed up? And why can't I seem to do the things that I wish that I could do? I want or will with my heart, but the performing of those things, I'm, I'm powerless to do. Why is that a reality in my life? This story, the passage we'll look at today, will orient the Israelites to really understanding those realities. So that's the historical context, but also there's an exegetical context. Exegetical context just means in the passage itself, what is happening in there? Where do our verses land in light of the rest of what is happening in the scriptures? So that exegetical context is this. You have the first two chapters of Genesis where, where God is doing amazing things. It's overly positive. It's like glowing talking about the creativity of God. If we're tracking with the Israelites here and hearing the history of God with them, a theme is beginning to emerge about the power and about the, the goodness of God. What, what have the Israelites learned about God up to this point? And just If you're tracking with them in order, reading through the book of Genesis, well, first of all, they've learned that God is eternal. You'll you, you remember he existed before the beginning. The very first verse very first thing that Moses writes, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Whenever the beginning was, God was already there. He was before the beginning. He preexisted the beginning. He's the reason the beginning happened. He's the beginner of the beginning, right? So they, they find out that God's eternal. They, they also know that God is powerful. He made everything that exists by the word of his power. He spoke it into existence. They also learn that God is creative. All that he has designed has been gloriously assembled and it works. The sun comes up, the rain falls, there's food for creatures and there's, you know, everything that is necessary for life and air and breath and all of these systems, they all just work. 
They, they realize that God is creative and that he is, that he is wise in his creation. They realize also that God is emotive. He takes delight in everything that he's made. He gets to the end of every day and he looks back over what he's done. He's like, oh, man, that was good. Look at it. Look at the fish swimming around. Look at these animals just crawling everywhere. This is, this is so good. He delights in it. He's a, he has emotion. He feels joy and delight. He finds pleasure in his creation. God is personal. That's also something they discovered. They discovered that he made mankind in such a way that he could both share in relationship with them and also that they can reflect that relationship to one another. He made them with the capacity to relate to God. He actually imparts part of his dominion and rule over the earth to them. He assigns them responsibility. He leads Adam in the garden to an understanding of his need for a counterpart. God is the one who relates to man and man is made with such a capacity to relate to him. God is personal. They've also discovered that he is loving. I I mean, in all of the world, in all of its wildness, in all of its craziness, God makes a garden and he takes man and he puts him in the garden Adam doesn't know that he has a need for a counterpart. God exposes the need by having him name the animals. And then God separates from Adam and fashions a woman from his rib and brings the woman. And then Adam's mind explodes. He sees her. He's like, man, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. This is, she's not like the gorilla I was staring at last week. I can't believe this. She's perfect. She's exactly what I need. And his love, God's love is on full display. It's displayed through his provision for their needs, his delight in sharing dominion with them, his presence and instruction in the garden, his protection over them and keeping them from the things that would harm when he says, don't eat from that tree. They find out that he is loving. And, and, and the Israelites have also learned up until this moment in Scripture that he is kind. Not only has God designed everything to work, but he has designed it in such a way that it brings pleasure and delight to his creatures. He wants them to be overcome by the beauty, by the colors, by the tastes, by the sounds by the physical sensations of touch and sensuality. He wants his creatures to share in the joy of what he has made. You see how kind he is in that? God's got options, right? He can make the world any way that he wants to. He could have made it like two-dimensional, only grayscale, black and white. He could have said, um, every day... You take this odorless, tasteless pill and that will supply all the nutrients that you need to be able to live. He could have made it so you can't feel anything, touch anything, see anything. He he has plenty of options. But he delights in bringing joy and pleasure to his creatures. (laughs) He wants them to share in the joy of what he has made. Just this morning, I was on my way over here from Medford, and the sun was, was kind of coming up, and um, so part of the mountains was lit up with like that golden early morning sun, you know what I mean? But then also this storm that's presently happening was, was coming in, and it was like dark, dark gray, like those heavy, heavy, like, snow, rain, clouds, you know what I'm saying? Just dark gray. And then all of a sudden, I came around this corner and there is a double rainbow. And I was like, what does it mean? No. Uh, <laughs> there's a double rainbow and, and I'm just like blown away at the beauty of this thing. I'm in my car, 70 miles an hour, cruising down the road. I've got my phone out the window, 
like trying not to drop it on the freeway, like, wow, that's so beautiful, like taking pictures. And then I, I came around the corner and the light just shifted just a little bit to where this whole set of mountains was dark and this set was lit up with light and then the double rainbow was going and I could see both ends of it on either side of the sky. And so I'm like, oh, take another picture. You know, I got like 45 pictures on my phone of the same double rainbow. But my brain is trying to take it in. It wants to explode. Like, look at that. Last night, my daughter, she made us dinner. And she, she, she's on TikTok all the time, so <laughs> she found this recipe on TikTok. It was just noodles and chicken and a bunch of special sauce, but it was phenomenal. I'd worked super hard yesterday, and, and so I come upstairs, I'm dying of hunger, and all of a sudden, it's like all of the, the neurons in my brain are just like lighting up, like, ooh, ooh, taste that. Can you feel that? Isn't that amazing? God delights in delighting us. He's kind. And see, this is why, I know this is a long intro, okay? We're going to get to the text, I promise. But I want you to see something. It is against this backdrop, this backdrop of the goodness of God, that our passage today finds its meaning. All that will unfold in the next few verses stands in contrast to the extravagant love of God displayed in the first two chapters of Genesis. So let's, let's take a look at how the story shifts. We're just going to read through it and then we'll kind of break it down. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they, and they sewed themselves, they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, well, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree that I commanded you not to eat? The man said, well, the woman that you gave to be with me, she gave me of the fruit of the tree, and, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, but the, the, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Can you sense the shift here? Can you feel against the backdrop of the goodness of God and all that he's done and the way that he's cared for mankind, how all of a sudden in the midst of this, this character is introduced. 
our, our time today really has kind of three points that you can kind of file all of the content. So for those of you who are note takers, I would encourage you, the three points are, are really simply this. The ruiner, the ruiner, the ruin, the ruin, and the response. The ruiner, the ruin, and the response. First, let's look at the ruiner. After seeing the goodness of God so clearly displayed, chapter three takes this ominous turn seemingly out of the blue. Here we're introduced to this sinister figure uh, whose obvious intent is for harm. And though we don't get all the details of where this figure came from, there are hints and outright claims throughout the rest of the Bible that help bring clarity to his possible origin. We learn from the book of Revelation, for instance, that the serpent from the garden is actually not just a regular serpent, that he's a spiritual figure who opposed God from the beginning. So Revelation chapter 12, verses 8 and 9 Uh, says this, it's actually verses seven through nine. Now a war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, the dragon was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So we see that this this serpent here in the garden is something that the Bible refers to later in the book of Revelation as not just a regular serpent, but this ominous spiritual figure that is the enemy of God who launched a rebellion in heaven. This is repeated repeated truth later in Revelation chapter 20, verse 2 where we're told that an angel came and seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So the serpent here in this passage is a character that is mentioned throughout the Bible. He's given different titles, but he's actually this spiritual being who is in rebellion against Yahweh and even launched a war against him. And in his rebellion, he was cast out of heaven along with all of his followers, a third of the angels. They they had to leave the abode of God. And in the end of Revelation, we discover that God still has ultimate authority and ultimately will imprison the devil. Now, other passages in the Old Testament fill in some possible details as to the origin and nature of this spiritual being. First of all, we need to understand something, though, from the text, and that is uh, the use of this word serpent. It doesn't really come through in the English translation, but the word here in the Hebrew is nachash, N-A-C-H-A-S-H, nachash. Now, the, the word nachash is used throughout the Old Testament in various ways. Sometimes a prefix or a suffix gets added to it, in uh, the Old Testament. Many times it's also interpreted serpent, so that was why it was given uh, that meaning here in this text. But it gets translated uh, in different ways throughout the scriptures. Many forms of the same word are used in other portions of scripture to denote shining or bronze-like or copper-like. And it's also used in other passages to denote an enchanter or diviner, a, a, a witch of some sort. And and here's kind of what I think the idea is in this text. This this spiritual figure in the garden hisses and bites like a serpent. He comes with evil intent to spread his toxic poison into God's creation. And like an actual snake, the poison that he spreads will intoxicate and it will kill its victims. Both Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 refer to two different evil world dictators that were current with both of those prophets. And they were both about to be judged by God. Now, each of these passages allude not just to these evil dictators, these kings that are in power, but they allude not only to them, but the spiritual force, the wickedness that is behind those kings. 
And many theologians see a direct reference to Satan. His fall as a seraph or as an angel and his subsequent deception in the Garden of Eden. It records him as a shining one, a sort of bedazzled creature. He is like the first bedazzled thing before the infomercial, right? He, he's covered with like shiny gems and, and stones that catch the light. And that he, the, the description is that he, even his vocal cords, his breathing is like, an, like a, a musical instrument, The Isaiah 14, 14 passage tells us that pride was found in his heart. And that though he was a, a seraph who walked in the garden of God, he boasted and he said, I will make myself like the most high. I'm going to be like God. I'm going to set myself on the sides of the north in the mountain of God. I'm going to be like him. Ezekiel 28 tells us in verses 13 to 15 that he didn't start out evil. Listen to what it says. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius and topaz and diamond and beryl and onyx and jasper and sapphire and emerald and carbuncle and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings on the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you you were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day that you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. So here, we see that something entered into the heart of this figure, this serpent, this one that is called the devil and Satan. Now, Jesus adds further testimony about the character of this figure who's given different titles throughout the scriptures. Talking to a group of people conspiring against him, Jesus told them that they were actually acting like their leader. In John chapter 8, verse 44, he says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. And he does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Doesn't this coincide with what we've just seen here in Genesis chapter three? In verse one is a part of the commentary of this new figure that's being introduced Moses writes that the Nahash, the serpent, was more crafty than any other beast of the field. He is here to use his craftiness, his subtlety to deceive and to destroy God's good creation. That's his whole intent. That's his whole plan. So we, here we see his origin. Now let's take a look at, at his nature. Let's look at, let's focus in on what he is actually like. First of all, notice here in verse one that he is created. Through Moses' description of this ominous figure, he's telling us that the serpent is both crafty or deceptive and that he is also a created being just like the beasts of the field. Satan is a creature, not a co-equal with Yahweh. Notice, notice what it says here. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He's a creation. He's not creator. He did not eternally exist. He's lumped in and compared with the beasts of the field. He's not eternal and uncreated. He is not equal with God. He is not the yin to God's yang. In fact, he's more like a petulant child who is shaking at his fist at the one who gave him life and gave him existence. Now, here's what this means. This means that Satan is not as powerful as God. In fact, he's under God's authority. He's subjugated 
to God. And he'll ultimately be judged by God. Satan, you'll remember, has to seek permission from God to be able to touch Job. He's like, you, you, you've protected him with hedges. I can't get through them. There's nothing I can do. You remember that when Jesus, the son of God, comes on the scene, he casts out demons and defeats the devil with only a word. Revelation chapter 20, the, the verses that I read to you did, you, did you know that it only takes one angel to bind Satan and cast him into the pit to be imprisoned? One angel, that's it. It doesn't even say it was like a super duper, super powerful angel. It's just an angel. Now that's not to say that Satan isn't capable of harm. Right? He, he swept a third of the angels into his rebellion. But you'll remember in the, in the passage that I mentioned earlier in Isaiah chapter 14, in verses 12 through 16, we're told that the nations will, will stare in amazement and wonder at Satan when they see him. They'll look narrowly at him with their eyes, They'll like squint at him and be like, is this the one? Is this the one that troubled the nations? Like everything bad that happened, was this, this guy? Now remember in that moment, what, what, what are they comparing him with? They're comparing him with Yahweh, with God, right? So in comparison, the creature to the creator, they look at the creature and they go, this is the enemy of God. What a fool he is to think that he could withstand God. But again, that's not to say that Satan isn't capable of harm. Not only did he sweep away a third of the angels into his rebellion, but now he's actively bringing his rebellion to mankind in this story. But when, but when Satan is compared to the creator, he's just a creation. He's just a creation. He is, however, deceptive. He's deceptive. Satan has the ability to appear more beautiful than his intent. Both he and those held captive to his power often appear to look good. You remember that Paul the apostle said in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13 to 15, regarding false teachers of his day, he says this, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder... For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. In other words, they cast their lot in with Satan, they end up with Satan's destiny. Right? So here comes Satan the Nahash, the serpent. And we're not sure if he was an actual serpent or some sort of other mystical form. The Faith Life Study Bible actually has a great note about this, about the entrance of the Nahash into the creation story. It says this, the attribution of human characteristics, cleverness and speech to the Nahash suggests it is more than an ordinary member of the animal kingdom, not just your average snake. But Adam and Eve are able to talk with him and, and they don't seem to be freaked out by his presence in the garden. Somehow their sense of threat is never really alerted by his presence. He, he looks better than he actually is and that is the subtlety, the deceitfulness of the enemy. Now, and now notice also the tactics that he uses in seeking to corrupt Adam and Eve. What's he do? Well, verse one, first of all, he divides their togetherness. He comes to the woman and he singles her out. Now remember, in the previous chapter, God created Adam first and then separates Eve out. But Adam is the one who God says, you're responsible for whatever goes down here. And the proof of that is actually after the passage that we're looking at today, we'll see that God holds Adam accountable for 
what took place, the rebellion that took place in the garden. And later on, the New Testament holds Adam to account for the sins of the entire world, even though Eve technically is the one who eats first. But Adam bears the responsibility in that place. So what does Satan do? He, he goes around the authority figure. He goes around, around the one whom God said is responsible. He, he subverts that. He comes into the wife and he divides them out. He separates. He omits the goodness of God's word. Notice in uh, verse one, he says, did God actually say that you're not to eat of any tree in the garden? Is that what God said? You shall not eat of any tree of the garden? No. If you go back to verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man saying, chapter two, verse 16, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. So God's like, look, I've given you 5,000 trees that you can eat from. I got one you shouldn't touch, shouldn't eat, right? He actually doesn't even say you shouldn't touch it. He says you shouldn't eat it. But Satan, he, he twists that around. He omits the goodness of God, takes the focus off the 5,000 good trees, puts it on the one tree, right? He omits the goodness of God's word. He cancels eating from every tree from verse 216. He denies the consequences of sin. And notice in uh, verse four. But the servant said to the woman, you will not surely die. He just flat out argues with the serpent or with, with God. He says, no, uh, you're not gonna die. I know that's what God said, but that's not true. He denies the consequences of sin. He twists God's word. Three times in this passage, Satan is monkeying with God's word. He omits the good. He denies the consequences of sin. And he twists its meaning to say that God is holding out on Adam and Eve. Notice this in verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What's he saying there? God is holding out on you. He doesn't want you to experience all that he has. He's limiting you. Don't you want to be like God? This same tactic of omitting the good, of denying the consequence of sin, of twisting the meaning of God's word to say something different or undermining the character of God, these are the same tactics that he uses with Jesus in the temptation in the wilderness. And we can expect that one of the places that we will be attacked as believers is in relationship to the word of God, which is why it is so imperative for us as saints to know the scriptures well and to know it for ourselves, to be students of the word of God because many times throughout the scriptures what you see is that Satan is using the word of God to tempt and to test God's people. The major threat in the New Testament, false prophets, false apostles who twist the scriptures to their own destruction. Next thing he does is he, he questions the goodness of God and says, God is holding out on you, verse five, and then he appeals to their desire. He says, don't you wanna be like God? He uses created things for destructive purposes. He, he, he says, oh, look at this fruit, it's good. Right? Take the creation for yourself and do with it as you please, not as God has said. He takes created things and he uses them for destructive purposes. Isn't that what, what is happening in the world around us? Marriage is being twisted around to use for destructive purposes as a family is wiped out. It, it wipes out the kids. It affects them for generations. They don't. Their first encounter in life and experience is not a love that lasts, a love filled with grace. That's, that's their first experience. If you come from a, a divorced home, you know what I'm talking about. That's what sin does. It, it twists, it perverts the good things that God has made. 
And the enemy is ultimately behind it. He is deceptive and he is destructive. True to the words of Jesus, the serpent is intent on murdering Adam and Eve and he does it through lies. Just like Jesus said, he was a murderer from the beginning. He's a liar. He speaks out of his own nature. That's who he is. So we've, we've seen the ruiner. Now let's take a look then at the ruin. Sin is serious and we vastly underestimate what an offense sin actually is. Packed into verse six is a ton of logical conclusions that we can make about sin. This one moment has so much wrapped up in it that it will actually take the rest of the Bible to sort of unpack and reveal just how devastating this moment is to humanity. The simple act of eating this piece of fruit is set against the backdrop of a God who has been more benevolent towards mankind than we could possibly imagine. And the offense, therefore, is so much deeper than just the simple act of eating a fruit. You ever thought that to yourself? Ever wonder, like, what is the big deal? They ate a piece of fruit. I know it was a no-no. Why is God so bent? How did the world get so twisted from just that simple act? What's really going on here? Let's consider then the meaning of this act. It is a betrayal of the deepest kind. So I want you to just think with me about what verse 6 actually means as Adam and Eve, as you see them taking the piece of fruit from the tree and eating it. Let's think about what that means for just a moment. First of all, sin is idolatrous. Sin is idolatrous. It exalts the creation over the creator. It makes good things ultimate things. God, for instance, says food is good, but food can be an idol to your own destruction. I love bacon, but if I eat bacon every day, gobs of it, I'm going to live a very poor life. Right? When good things that God has made become ultimate things, it is ultimately idolatry. So sin is idolatrous. Second of all, sin is a relational betrayal. It betrays the goodness of God. I can't help but think about the, the children of Israel at Mount Sinai. I mean, God has delivered them from Egypt, right? Mighty plagues, he's protected them from the, the, the angel of death that came and took the firstborn. He, he gets them out. They leave rich. People are giving them like jewelry and stuff like that. They, they get out into the desert. They get up to the, the Red Sea. They have nowhere to go. They're desperate. God parts the Red Sea. They walk through on dry land. They get out into the desert. They have no water. And so God takes a freshwater lake and, or it takes a lake that is like bitter and then turns it into fresh water so that everybody has water. Bread literally falls from heaven and is there in the morning for them to consume. Quail come in so that they have meat. A rock follows them around in the desert and has a spring gushing forth from it to provide water for them while they're traveling through the desert. And then you get to Mount Sinai. Moses ascends to the mountain. God says, come up here. I've got some plans I want to give you. Down below, what happens? They take the gold that they got from Egypt, the earrings and the jewelry and the utensils and whatever they find, they melt it down into a golden calf. They, they have this horrible pagan celebration down below and they say, this is the God who delivered you out of Egypt. Can you see the offense? Can you see how heavy it is? That's the kind of betrayal we're talking about here in the book, of Exodus, or the book of Genesis. It is a relational betrayal against a good God. Sin is also rebellion. Adam and Eve sought to be like God apart from God. They wanted to be like God apart from God being involved in that process. It was autonomy. 
It was independence. It was rebellion. It was a determination to be autonomous and independent of him. They knew what he said. They chose to do it in a way. They rebelled against God. So this moment of eating a piece of fruit, it's idolatrous. It's a relational betrayal. It is a rebellion. It's a desire for autonomy and separation from God. They want to be like him, but not be with him. And it's destructive. Sin is destructive. It goes against God's created design. The reason that the sin is bad is because it's bad for them. Listen. Sin is not bad because it is forbidden. It is forbidden because it is bad. It hurts us. It goes against God's created design. It wounds us physically, emotionally, spiritually. It destroys us. Not only that, but sin is divisive. It separates mankind from God. Not only that, but it separates them from one another. Here, Adam and Eve, they're they're hiding in the garden. They're separated from one another. And at the end of our passage, as we read, they blame each other. Well, it's the woman you gave me. It's divisive. It separates mankind from God and from one another and from their own sense of being loved by God. So much so that they sow themselves fig leaves and hide in shame. This one simple act was not so simple. Even more than that, sin is eternal. Guys, this is the craziest thing. This is the thing that we can't wrap our minds around because we're so fixated on time here, okay? This is an eternal act. This is why judgment for sin doesn't come until the end. Because the consequences of sin are still unfolding with time all the way to the end of the age. Do you see that? It's eternal. Not only that, in this moment right here when sin enters the earth, every person who lives, listen to me, lives with conscious, eternal torment in hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched and the smoke ascends forever. Every person who endures that eternal consequence is there because of this sin here. It's eternal. And the consequence of that sin will be bared out over eternity it's huge sin is divisive sin is eternal and sin brings shame you remember in chapter 2 verse 25 the previous chapter ends with this phrase that the two were naked and not ashamed but as soon as they sin with the entrance of sin the presence of shame comes And it changes the way that they relate to their own being. Instead of being God's creatures made in his image, they see themselves differently. And they see themselves darkly. They they look look at themselves and go, oh, I'm exposed, I'm I'm naked, I'm I'm disgusting. What's wrong with me? And they, they begin to try and just grab whatever they can to cover themselves up. The closest thing is the scratchiest leaf in the garden, a fig leaf. I mean, the only thing worse that I could think of is maybe like poison oak, right? Like if you sewed some BVDs out of poison oak. I heard an amen back there. It's like, oh, oh. Listen, sin brings shame. And even more than that, sin is fatal. It brings death. God promised them. He said, in the day that you eat of this, surely you will die. 
And in this passage, as it continues on, they are cut off from the tree of life and they live dying for the rest of their lives. That's the reality. This one act is what plunges the world into chaos. It is the reason that everything awful has happened in the world. All sin has at its roots the same elements that we've just discussed. It is the reason that sin is such an offense against God. Look at the destruction it brings into the world. One small act of rebellion led to everything that is broken now. We're so dismissive of it. You think, well, I'm not dismissive of it. Really, how fast did you drive here today? When was the last time you told a lie? Fudged the truth, inflated the story. So many ways which our heart is set on rebellion and every single one of them, every single one of them has eternal consequence and does eternal destruction. Throughout the New Testament, there are eight lists of vices or sins. Mark chapter 7, verses 21 to 22. From within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts and sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 30, 28 through 32. Since then, they did not see fit to acknowledge God. They gave, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, with evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God. They're insolent. They're haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Romans 13, 13. Let us walk openly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness and not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And the list goes on. And what might surprise you is the things that are on the list. Some of them we automatically know. We think of, you know, all the bad sins, the big name sins. But have you thought about the other ones, like having a haughty spirit? What about being foolish? Thought about that? What about being faithless? Or heartless? You see somebody in suffering and you're unmoved by it. Living in denial to the pain around you. Oh, how great, how great, how great is our sin. Now the list of these offenses in the Bible is not meant to just leave us condemned. Rather, it's meant to be like a mirror that shows how desperately we need a savior. It's meant to show us how far away from the garden we've really become. It defines just how lost we are and how desperately we need grace and forgiveness. And as the rest of the Bible unfolds, it's this journey of God calling us back, bringing us back. He's, he's longing to repair what is broken and to restore us into his presence. And, and in our passage here, isn't that what we see? We see God's response. From verses eight and on, God comes in the garden, walking in the cool of the day, 
The man and the wife are hiding themselves, but God calls out to the man and says, where are you? Track with me here for just a minute. Consider for a moment all the Israelites are learning about God as they hear the story of creation sort of told by Moses. They heard the story of a good God who made everything, shared it with the ones that he has made in his own image. Then the enemy comes in and messes it all up and and the humans that he made to bear his image have now sought to live independently of him. They've rebelled against him. He has been sinned against and all of his benevolence towards mankind has been spurned by them. And here's the question. What will God do? How will he respond? What will come next? This is what I want you to see. Here in God's response, there are three things that you need to take note of. First of all, God pursues. He doesn't wait for Adam to come to him. He comes to Adam. How does God respond to this relational sin? He does not come in wrath and judgment. He came in the same way that he had always come before. He comes walking in the cool of the day. He does not come with a sword in his hand full of rage and fire in his eyes. He comes with a, as a broken-hearted father in, see, in search of and seeking his son and his daughter. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 313, 3 through 13 makes this so clear. He says, don't you know if God brings discipline, it's because he loves you. He loves you like a father loves his child. He's in pursuit of your heart. You, you honor earthly fathers, but they discipline you for their own thoughts, their own reasons. He disciplines us for our good that we might share in his holiness. <laughs> he pursues. Second thing to take note of is that God is present. Adam and Eve are both hiding in their shame, and shame carries with it the fear of exposure. It's the inner belief that if I'm seen for what I am, I will not be accepted, I will not be loved. And this is the reason that Adam and Eve are hiding. This is the fear that they have, the fear of being exposed for for who they are. And they feel this vulnerability really in three different levels. The first one is the fear of self-exposure. They they are disgusting to themselves. And so they sow fig leaves to hide themselves from themselves. I don't want to have to look at me. So it's a fear of self-exposure. The second one is the fear of relational exposure. They're covering their nakedness not only from themselves but also from one another. I don't want you to look at me either. I don't want you to see my imperfections, my flaws. I don't want you to see what I've done. I don't want you to see how I I feel who I am and I don't want you to see it. And the third thing is the fear of divine exposure. They're seeking to cover their nakedness ultimately from God. They don't want God to see what they feel. They don't want to stand in front of him without some sort of barrier, something that lessens the impact of the ugliness that they have become. If God sees, what will he think of them? What will he do in response? But notice that though they are hiding from God, he is not hiding from them. As egregious as their sin is, he has come to them. He has pursued them. He is present with them. He's come to to them in their sin. He already knows all that has taken place, but now he is revealing his presence in the midst of their sin and shame. He is in pursuit and he is present in their shame. In, in, in pastoral care and counsel, this is one of the most powerful and at the same time most painful truths that we encounter. It's the confrontation of the, the thereness of God. God is present with us at our worst, at our most shameful moment, at the darkest place when we were at the worst of our sin. He was there. He saw it. He witnessed it firsthand. And he, and he recognizes the weight of that. He's, he's like, Jeremy, 
I gave you my breath that you might bear my image and, and you have acted in this rebellion in this manner. He's present with us even in the sin. He sees it all as it unfolds and we're not always aware of that reality. There in the garden was Adam and Eve and the serpent. And though they couldn't see him there in the garden was the omnipresent God who witnessed and beheld their rebellion the entire time. So God, he pursues, he's present. And God also probes. He, God begins to ask questions. And these are questions that he already knows the answer to. Now, why, why does he do that? Right? He, he says, where are you? Does he not know where they are? He, he says to the man, who told you that you were naked? Does he not know who told him that? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Does he know? Yeah, he knows. He knows it all. When he comes to the woman and he says, what is this that you have done? Does he know what she's done? Yes, he knows it all. He saw it. He witnessed it. He was there. Right? Why is he asking the questions? Are they going to say something that informs God? No. You know, in the New Testament, we're told to, to confess our sins. That he's faithful and just. He forgives our sins. And he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. You see, confession is not for God's benefit, it's for ours. When we confess, we purge our conscience, we recognize our need for grace, we come to a place of understanding that we are desperately in need of his mercy. Confession is not for God's good, it's for ours. It's the confrontation that brings us out of our shame and out of our hiding. It's the recognition that we are wholly dependent upon the grace and mercy of God. God calls us to reveal what he already knows so that he can heal us from what we are powerless to undo. He's probing at the hearts of Adam and Eve here in order that they might acknowledge their sin for their own sake. The sin will still have consequence and the consequences are going to be severe. But God doesn't want them to live perpetually in their shame. So he calls them out of the darkness and into the light. He doesn't want them hiding forever from him. Their only chance of healing. Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? What is this that you have done? How great, how great is our lostness? How great is the mountain of our sin? How great is our betrayal against a loving and holy God? How great is the wickedness of our rebellion? It is falling in league with the enemy of God. But listen. Listen to what the apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. He says, while we were still in our sins, while we were yet sinners, God sought to rescue us. See? In light of the greatness of our sin, how great then is his mercy? How great then is his love? How great is his kindness towards us that leads us to repentance, that calls out to us as we hide in our shame and says, where are you? Come to me. How great is his mercy. How great is his grace. He didn't leave us on the mountain, the Mount Everest of our sin to die. 
He came to seek and to save the lost. He came to pursue us. He was present in our sin. And even now, as he probes our hearts by the Holy Spirit, day by day by day, he calls to us. And he says, why are you hiding? I sent my son to be made in the likeness of Adam. He defeated the enemy and the temptation which he faced in the desert against the Nahash, the serpent. He yielded his life in obedience in a garden called Gethsemane, like the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve failed. My son did not fail. He yielded himself, body, soul, and spirit, to the Father in obedience saying, not my will, but yours be done. He was nailed to the tree and became the curse absorber. He soaked up all the consequence and the wrath of the Father at our sin. He absorbed that into himself. He who knew no sin became sin for us in order that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. He was raised from the dead to give you a new life. And God would say, I have dealt with it all. I've done all of it. It's all been dealt with. Why are you hiding? Come to me. As the worship team comes back up, I want to invite you to do something. James says that if we are hearers of the word and not doers only, then we are like a person who sees himself in a mirror. He wakes up in the morning, comes out, he's got like the crusty things like at the corner of his mouth and he's unshaven. His hair is like slicked off sideways and sweaty and glossy and he's gross and his fur on his teeth. He sees himself in the mirror and he's like, oh, oh well, and then moves on does nothing with it. The point of our time together is that we might examine our hearts before God and come to him and say, Lord, search me, know me, see if there's any wicked way in me. Come to the one who pursues you. Confess all. Receive his forgiveness through the sacrifice of Jesus and let him today cleanse your conscience and renew a right heart within you. Amen? Let's pray. Father, as we come to you in worship in response to your word, I ask, Lord, that you would send your spirit and illuminate in our hearts the areas where we are even now resisting you. We know that that's a work that will take place over the course of our lives. We don't even know the depth and the bottom of our resistance yet. But as you reveal those things, God, help us to run to you, not to hide, not to make fig leaves from ourselves or, or hide behind the trees thinking that we, we can somehow hide from your presence. We can't. We know that. Instead of seeing you as a wrathful, vengeful father who's angry with sword in hand, but may we see you as a loving father who disciplines those who he loves. May we come freely knowing that not only have you dealt with it all and paid for it all, but as you call us out of the darkness and into your marvelous light, that it is because you want us to be free. It is for freedom that we've been set free. So God, heal our wounds, bind our broken hearts, bring conviction of sin, and cleanse and purge our conscience as we pray and as we worship. In Jesus' name, amen.